Hi, I'm Katerina, and this is Sound Effects, a music and mental health podcast. I'm here with David. This is our first session. We're just going to talk about your background, where you're from, any issues you've been dealing with. So, where should we start? I'm exploring hip-hop. I used to hear a voice when I was praying, but nowadays I don't even want to be saved. Nah, fuck that, I don't want to be saved. I was born to be wild, I don't want to be tamed. I'll be chatting to two senior hip-hop academics at Cambridge University, Dr. Akeem Sule and Dr. Becky Ingster, who are the co-founders of Hip Hop Psych that they founded to conduct research and raise awareness of the links between hip hop and mental health and its benefits, especially in prisons and psychiatric settings where they've taken their work. They've actually published loads of academic papers on this topic, which I provided links to in the show notes. And they'll also talk about some of it in the interview. I'll give you a bit more of their background. Akeem Sule is a locum consultant adult psychiatrist within the NHS. He's the honorary visiting researcher at Cambridge Department of Psychiatry, a research associate at Wolfson College, Cambridge, and he lectures the medical students at Cambridge University. As for Becky Ingster, she's a neuroscientist and a data scientist, and she specialises in youth and language culture. She's a researcher at Cambridge University Department of Psychiatry. Um, She's done loads more than that as well, but she'll explain all of that in her interview. The episode is split into two halves of about an hour each. Akeem will explain the culture and history of hip-hop and its links with psychiatry, and then Becky will go more into the science of what's happening in the brain when you're freestyle rapping or listening to hip-hop. So I hope you enjoy it. Probably battling with manic depression Man, I think I'm going mad again It's like I'm happy for a second and I'm sad again And to my fans, the reason I could get to this You're my drug, the instrumental, my therapist Man, I need some therapy My girl's saying that she'll never leave I'm scared she's gonna find a better me Deep insecurities Like, what if I don't leave a legacy Money, why they check for me I've been so um, interested to speak to you and Becky for ages Because this is the kind of thing I've I've been really interested to understand from a, a very kind of academic perspective. And so far, I've done a lot of interviews with musicians and even music therapists as well and authors and charities. But what I really wanted to do more of was actually understand some of the research going on behind the scenes and the people that work in this area, which is why I'm really keen to speak to you. Dr. Akeem Sule, you're the co-founder of Hip Hop Psych, which we'll go into in a moment. But you know what really struck out at me? You won an award in 2009 as Consultant Teacher of the Year. You were touted as the pioneer of the old school hip hop method of teaching. What does that mean? So so basically, um, in terms of like looking at teaching, so I generally am a general adult psychiatrist. And among medical students, psychiatry as a specialty, traditionally, it has a long history of not being able to attract people into the specialty. And that's why, because you often get the whole discussion about is psychiatry really medicine? Is it a science? 
You understand? Because if you notice, psychiatry brings the arts, the humanities, it brings science, it brings medicine, it brings all these things. So some people, rather than see it as medicine, they see that as, as a weakness. And so generally what I was thinking about is how do we make psychiatry, how do we make it interesting so that when medical students are taught it, um, they can embrace it, they are interested in it, and they can basically want to take it up as a specialty. Mm. And so before I met Becky, I was basically using hip-hop lyrics to spice up the psychiatry. And when I say spice up, I don't mean like use it to rein them in, but just to show the links with hip-hop in terms of the hip-hop lyrics. And it was after I did this that I met Becky and I showed, told Becky, look, Becky, this is what I'm doing with the medical students. Then I was a specialist registrar in, in Oxford. And I said, this is what I'm doing with the medical students in Oxford. And then when I came to Cambridge, I started doing the same. And then basically that's how hip hop psych started. Mm-hmm. So the old school hip hop method, it was, just, it was just a fun way, I think, the medical students to recognize that I was using hip hop in terms of teaching um, medical students about psychiatry. And prior to that, they had never had that kind of experience before. So it it was just basically like a joke, really, between us. For you personally, your interest in hip-hop, it sounds like right from the beginning, that interest was there. And you mentioned, I know that you studied in Nigeria, you studied medicine in Nigeria. How did you personally come into hip-hop as a child and was it helpful to you personally? Definitely. So obviously, so the first thing, I was actually born in the UK, but I returned to Nigeria at six. Um, But I remember my older sister used to play music, but I remember rappers delight. Said a hip-hop, you hit by Sugar Hill Gang, said a hip-hop, you hit it, you hit it, you don't stop, or rock to the bang, bang, boogie. And I remember that, and that's how I got interested. I remember groups like Houdini, Curtis Blow, and it was just a genre of music that just appealed to me. Obviously, we had our local music in Nigeria, but I... In terms of my view of Pan-Africanism, you know, obviously we've had, like in Nigeria, we had the Afrobeat movement through Fela. But for me, being a young Nigerian, I saw, I was exposed to Pan-Africanism actually through hip-hop, which, 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 which was quite interesting. I remember when I was in medical school, I used to listen to hip-hop day and night. In fact, my medical student colleagues used to make fun of me. So I've always been interested in, so I've been interested in hip hop since 1979, you know, you know, from that whole Sugar Hill gang era, you know, like I said, Houdini, Curtis Blow, you know, up until to date. And I've just generally kept being interested in it, really. As I'm sure you can appreciate in Nigeria now, there's a huge like Afrobeat scene, which is distinct from Fela's Afrobeat, but it's just a mixture of different genres but it brings that African flavor in it but I'm still writing for my hip-hop you know <laughs> when you when you get a loyalty to a genre it can be so powerful I, I know for no, my, definitely. Yeah, it means so much more I think than just music I think absolutely yeah like a, a philosophy or almost to the point of a kind of religion I don't know if that's how it is for you okay yeah. Yeah. I, I would just say for me I don't see it I don't see it as a religion but I see it as it is a culture. I think that's the best place. So 
when I go into the room, I'm bringing hip hop culture. I see myself as an ambassador of hip hop culture. So you mentioned the award we we won. We won an award, um, Becky and I, for hip hop side. It was the British Association of Psychopharmacology Public Engagement and Award. And so when I go into these spaces, be that to give talks, you know, obviously the views Becky and I have our own personal views. But when I walk into a room of academics, I feel I'm carrying my hip hop swag into that room. So it's not just about why I say it's how I carry myself, how I move my hands when I'm talking, um, how I communicate. Hip hop is a big part of that. And I want to be a good ambassador of hip hop. And so when I'm in those spaces, I need to represent hip hop well. You understand? And at the same time, with hip hop, it's about credibility. So, like when we did a we did the second public engagement lecture with the British Association of Psychopharmacology. And I remember when Becky and I did it, obviously all eyes were on us, upon all eyes on me by Tupac. And therefore, we had both the academics and we also had the hip hop community in Manchester. And we had to give the lecture in such a way that there was respect to both. We couldn't compromise on the science, the neuroscience, the psychology, the, you know, and Becky was commenting a lot of the neuroscience, but we also had to be true to the genre because the hip hop community in Manchester were looking at us. Do you know your hip hop? Do you, are you re really representing us? So it's making sure you go with both those hats, if that makes sense. So I see it more as a culture really. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. What I kind of like about that, or what really stands out for me is this, uh, you mentioned how up until very recently, if not still, like academic institutions have got a very fixed way of teaching and can put people off and sort of exacerbate some of the inequalities perhaps that you're kind of talking about in in your work and that hip-hop addresses as well so I found that quite fascinating in itself around what that's really saying as well mm. kind of bringing excitement and passion to the work but in a less stuffy way it sounds like no absolutely and I think what's important to know is Generally, there's this whole concept of decolonizing, you know, academic institutions. But when people see hip hop, people just often see that stereotype of hip hop, you know, all this bling and, you know, women on poles and things like that. And to be honest, that isn't really hip hop because hip hop has five elements, as we know. You know, we've got the DJ, the MC, the graffiti, the, you, you, you know, the hip hop music itself. But one of the most important aspects is knowledge. Now, when you look at hip hop history, hip hop history didn't start in the Bronx. In fact, it actually started in Africa because you look centuries ago, you had like in, in areas like Senegal and Gambia, you had the griots and the griots used to talk about oral tradition. They were revered and they were well-respected in the community. Where I come from, I'm Nigerian, I'm, I'm from the Yoruba tribe. And we have this thing called oriki. Oriki is oral tradition. And that is passed down from generation to generation. So sometimes you'll find people talking about their history. And like hip-hop music, it's a bit like faction. So you have some embellishment of details. So it might be that, oh, this guy is a drummer. When he drums, you know, it can be heard all over the world. But then there are also facts about how your family line came into existence. And 
that oral tradition through the drum and through storytelling was taken through slavery, the transatlantic Atlantic straight, um, slavery to Cuba, to Brazil, to North, you know, to North America, and also to the Caribbeans. So if you look at Caribbeans, whether that is Calypso, that's that same oral tradition. Now, if we look at how hip hop landed in the Bronx, let's think about what was happening there. This was a time when there was a dearth in the African-American community and predominantly Hispanic and Hispanic communities, predominantly African-American. There were drugs in the community. We had the assassination of Malcolm X. You know, we had the dearth of the Black Panthers and Martin Luther King. So there was a void. Now, in 1973, DJ Cool Huck, who is one of the pioneers of hip hop, threw the first block party at 1520 Cedric Avenue. And that's where he, he used to reside. And basically, he brought all those traditions. So his ancestors had laid it down. And we had the block parties. He realized he could play two records and basically get the dopeness of two, you know, or the get down beat of two records playing simultaneously. And what people fail to realize is that all that tradition has gone before. And we look at where hip hop is now. So we look at where the environment it grew up in, drugs, you know, poverty, incarceration of tons of African-Americans due to war on drugs policy, which unfortunately was racist. Let's call it regonomics, policies that affected predominantly African-American families and Hispanic communities. And let's look at what it is. So therefore, if you explore hip hop lyrics, you know, you can look at the vulnerabilities for mental health, but also the resilience. And there's a whole lot of tons to teach you Hood economics, sociology, philosophy, for all the centuries of that knowledge, which has come from Africa to where we are today. I was thinking as well, I mean, my background, my cultural heritage is Greek Cypriot. So mm. I was born in London, but my family are, I'm, I'm like basically third generation Greek Cypriot mm. immigrant. And I was talking to this other guy, you may well know him, Giorgio Savides. He yes, yes. Pop orchestra. Mm. I was talking to him a few months back, and we were having this conversation about why so many people within the Greek Cypriot community are huge hip hop fans because it's a it's a really big thing within, especially in North, North London Greek Cypriot community. Mm. And we were kind of reflecting and thinking, well, that the history of Greek Cypriots and the movement of war in Cyprus and the mass emigration that happened we were just wondering whether there was something being understood about hardship or intergenerational trauma kind of a bit like when you mentioned at the beginning about the oratory part of him mm. and the absorbing of pain and the communication of pain whilst mm. obviously the circumstances are vastly different that there's some communal language in that that maybe speaks to um, the Greek Cypriot community in London and I guess as I'd been thinking about it I would maybe mention it to you and see if no no definitely definitely I think you know hip-hop when it started, thinking about where it came from, and I do agree, it does speak about intergenerational trauma, but it also talks about resilience too. So the global community must, can relate to that. That being said, I think it's an, um, an academic, hip-hop academic, um, Trisha Rose said, it's really important that we don't take hip-hop out from 
its predominantly African-American roots. And that's not to say Hispanics weren't involved. So it's to respect it as that. But that doesn't mean we can't have a global hip-hop, you know, movement as 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 part of that which a lot of people be it from india or different parts of the world greek cypriot like you said can um basically connect to it i i think you can have that global hip-hop you you know movement really and like i said there's something in words like i remember um what's his name um R.A. Rocket Man was basically talking about Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is lauded as, you know, this guy that has a good way with words. And he was saying, if you, if you sat Bob Dylan down with Cool G Rap, Cool G Rap would tear Bob Dylan <laughs> <laughs> apart lyrically, which is true. There's just something about the way words are used in hip-hop, which in any other genre isn't happening. And I think people can relate to that let me ask you one question is your money that good will it buy you forgiveness do you think that it could i think you will find when your death takes its toll all the money you made will never buy back your soul. Those that portray us on the block, they rock like Damodeus. Fakers be used to shoot the targets. Soon as the darkest, front on the drug market, body zero up in the carpet. Those are cheaters trying to beat us. We got hookers with heaters that are straight popping, but more shows in your top than Adidas. The leaders looking straight to me and our Giorgio Bamani's. You want to harm me and us? You got to come get through a whole army. The Silo Rollers, Monty Bowler, Sipping Bowler, Holy Man Payola, Slinging the Coke without the Cola. Yeah, I and I really hear you when you said it's so important not to remove it from the cultural heritage and roots mm. that you're talking about. I really hear that. And the importance of that, I guess, that it's got its roots and heritage embedded within the sentiments. Mm. Um is that something I mean I'm just thinking on the hoof here whether that's something that feels like it's being um appropriated in some way definitely let's keep it let's keep it a hundred a thousand it is I mean first of all there's capitalism Mm. and then the other thing is people jump on it now I'm not one of these guys going to point the fingers and say he's appropriating it but we see it in it all and I see people who would jump on the swagness of hip hop, but won't identify with the pain. And then when we need them to come through for black folk, because I can think about how you would enjoy a music, but not identify with the struggle. So there's a song by Sounds of Blackness that everybody wants to sing my blues. Nobody wants to live my blues. So people want to sing it. But when it comes to rising for black folk, they're nowhere to be sound. I remember Jay-Z saying something about how hip-hop has done um, quite a lot for um, civil rights movements compared to, you know, black rights compared to civil rights. But I would say, where are that generation of white folk who were listening to hip-hop back then? Are they writing as hard in terms of the rights of black folk, really? Yeah. You know, hip-hop, you know, 
people use the swagness, but then don't necessarily get behind the struggles of black folk. And I, I find that, you know, morally reprehensible. I'm sorry, I, I'm putting it quite strong, but we need to call it out for what it is, really. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, please don't apologise. Mm. I really welcome it. And, yeah. uh, and I really hear you. And I think it's an important message. And probably listeners will, you know, I'm sure they'll agree. Mm. Um, and it's as you've been kind of saying that there's something powerful about someone speaking the reality of someone else. So people listening will hear you there and, and really feel mm. that. Look, black is distant, it's representing countries that never even existed while your grandmother was living. Black is my Ghanaian brother reading into scriptures, doing research on his lineage, finding out that he's Egyptian. Black is people naming your countries and what they trade most, coast of ivory, gold coast and the grain coast, but most importantly to show how deep all of this pain goes. West Africa, Benin, they call the slave coast. Black is so confusing because the culture they're in love with it. They take our features when they want and have their fun with it. Never seem to help with all the things we know would come with it. Loud in our laughter, silent in our suffering. Black is being I'm wondering about your interest in medicine as well. Initially, when you were training in medicine and then you're moving to psychiatry, where that interest came from? To be honest, I grew up in Nigeria. You did what your parents did. Your parents would say your handwriting is bad. You're going to be the doctor in the family. <laughs> it was simple as that. <laughs> But psychiatry, my mom was a psychiatric nurse. So I remember when I was young, when I was younger, just reading my mom's psychiatric books. and like, this is interesting. This is about human people. This is about human beings. This is about behavior. And I found it fascinating. And I remember when I got to medical school, again, back in Nigeria then, and to some extent now, probably not as much, there was a lot of stigma. So even if you wanted to do psychiatry, people looked at, down on you. But I remember when I did psychiatry, just seeing the patients, working with them, hearing their stories, I just realized it was for me and there was no looking back. Mm. What do you think was for you? <laughs> so for me, it was meeting people, learning their stories, being able to help them. And I just think with psychiatry, just that model of biopsychosocial model, looking at, you know, the vulnerabilities, looking at their psychological backgrounds, social backgrounds, their resilience, coping strategies, and how it brings the arts, the humanities, almost everything you do in anything can be related to psychiatry. Psychiatry, whether you're watching a movie, painting a picture, music, it just hits different when it comes to psychiatry, it connects easily. You don't have to force anything, if that makes sense. It does. As you mentioned resilience, I was going yes. to really bring that up as well, because I was reading on your website that that's a core part of your of hip-hop psych, that mm. you're looking at the idea of narratives and how those narratives within hip-hop culture can help people is it helping people with their resilience or is it that they're speaking about a particular kind of resilience or both? okay to be honest I think it's both what hip-hop so like I said how do you explain a genre that was birthed in discord that was birthed where you know in an environment where 
the African-Americans and Latinos were looked down upon. Let's look at where it is. It's a multi-billion industry. Now we can debate about how record companies and capitalism have exploited it, but that shows you resilience. We have people like Jay-Z. You think about where he came from, look at where he is. He's gone from saying, um, no, you know, I'm not a businessman, I'm a business man, you understand? And that shows you, that shows you resilience. And what we're saying is that when we look into the lives of these hip-hop artists, not only looking at the lives of the hip-hop artists, but listening to music, we can have resilience. So one of the articles we wrote was on Maino. And Maino was a chap who was basically arrested. I believe he's from Brooklyn, New York. He was arrested for a failed kidnapping at the age of 16. He spent 10 years in prison in Rikers Island, which was one of the most horrible um, prisons and still is really. And we see where he had not rapped before. He goes into prison. He learns to navigate the environment and then he releases all of the above. And in all of the above, there's a line there where he says, when I think about my, when I envision my future, I imagine Ferraris. I'm, you know, I think about Obama. And what's he doing there? What hip hop songs are really good at is painting a narrative. So there's this concept called positive visual um, imagery. And that's why where you're able to paint a picture of what your life would want to be like. And a lot of rappers, before they start talking about popping the moe, before they talk about the, 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 the rims and the wheels, they've not yet lived that life, but they're speaking into existence. They're painting that picture. And that kind of positive visual imagery we know from, you know, from, 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 re, from research done, it actually helps to protect against depression. And when you're in depressing environments, it can help to boost your self-esteem and protect against that. And so we see all these kinds of things. And I think hip-hop has a lot to teach you. There's the whole concept of hood economics. When you see people like 50 Cent, Jay-Z becoming chief executives, they've done that through their hip-hop swag and things they've learned through the hip-hop culture. Mm. When you talked about Maino, I, I was having a listen to the song that you mentioned. It's all, all of the above, was it? That yes. Was the song. Yes. And I wrote down, where did I put it? Because I mm. wrote down one of the lyrics that struck out at me. Mm. And, uh, where's it gone? Oh, mine, I wrote it down. It was what I can remember. It was about... Um, it was the bit where he talks about picture yourself in a cell. Um, exactly, yes. Even as I was reading it, that really was very powerful to me. Mm. What I got from that was was he was saying, like, picture when you're looking at me, imagine yeah. yourself and what you can achieve. But also, yes. like, looking back to what he absolutely as well. Yeah, mm. so there's some, there's some kind of... Um, seeing the sense of if I can do it you can do it too and it's sort of but it's more than that because if you listen to that song there's you know when it's like picture me in a cell picture me beating the count he's doing a process called cognitive reframing now Katrina being someone in psychology your ability to reframe what appears to be a negative event into a positive so saying yes I was there but whilst I was in prison I was grinding my hustle now, I think Becky and I, we need to make it quite clear. Those environments need to change. We shouldn't have to be able to use resilience, but Maino was able to survive that by that cognitive reframing process. 
So he saw it as a way of grinding his hustle. He learned how to rap. He learned how to do all these things whilst he was in the cell. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that's one of the things that he did. Now, there's a concept in resilient literature called turning point. And when that's an opportunity for, for a discontinuation with a disadvantaged past and to the ability tra- to transition into something positive. Now, in Maino's case, through the cognitive reframing, that's how he was able to see that he, he probably was able to break out old associations. But that being said, we've got to think about why people shouldn't need to be that resilient because among for every Maino, there are tons of other people that the system has really broken their resolve cause mental problems and cause lots of damage really. Mm. Kind of working with the system and then changing the system as it is mm. as well. Is that what you mean? Kind no, of absolutely, way? absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Picture you facing the charge, picture you beating the odds, picture you willing to bleed, picture you wearing the scar. Thank you for making me struggle, thank you for making me grind. I perfected my hustle, tell me the world ain't mine. As you talked about the positive imagery, I was thinking there about how exactly that, that those techniques are used in things like cognitive behavioral therapy or absolutely therapy. and like we adopt them in these um clinical settings with this very clinical jargon and language but as you mm. say they're already there it's in the music it's in the narrative it's um and emily holmes work talks about that emily holmes has done um she's quite big on that um so i believe emily holmes is a psychologist i think we've Karolinska um, Institute in Sweden, but she was in Cambridge. I actually met her in Oxford, but she was very big on positive visual imagery, visual imagery in general. Um, that's one of the new big things in, within cognitive behavioral therapy, really. Mm. Changing images, really, in terms of therapeutic inputs. I'm a miracle, baby. I refuse the lows. This is the ghetto to live me. I put that on my father, trying to hope for tomorrow. When I think that I can't, I envision Obama. I envision them diamonds. I envision Ferraris. If the world was perfect, hold my n- behind me. Ain't you happy I made it? Man, I'm making a statement. Take a look, and you can tell that I'm destined for greatness. And is that in any way connected to what you also talk about in your work around mental illness and mental difficulty in hip hop lyrics that many people haven't really explored and unpicked what those things mean, but they really processed within hip hop lyrics? So again, thanks for bringing that. You brought an interesting point. Often hip hop has, has, you know, when people look at it superficially, they say hip hop has undergone a transition. It's gone from being very machismo to being very sensitive. So on one hand, you have the hard, like, late 70s, 80s, 90s gangster rap. Then you've got the more emo hip hop, the little peeps, the little Uzi verse, the XXX Tantasians, the um, Juice Worlds. You understand? But even if you looked at hip hop back in the, in the 70s, early 80s, you had the message, Grandmaster Flash and the Fewers Five, where they say, don't push me because I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. 
And it's talking about how these dire conditions, and we think about what US was like, particularly, you know, areas like New York, how it was like, the dire conditions, regonomics, you know, all these policies, you know, drugs in the environment. And they really paint the picture. In that lyrics, they also talk about someone actually taking his life. So it does paint the picture. If we look at things like Minds Playing Tricks on Me by Ghetto Boys, they're talking about hallucinations because Becky uses this term street epidemiologist. What rappers have always been able to do is to describe what they see. And in those conditions, you're bound to see mental health problems. You take a song by Tupac Shakur, um, which one of my favorites shed so many tears when he's like, he starts with, back in elementary, a thrived on misery. Then it talks about, I grew up amongst a dying breed. You understand? So he's basically talking about, you know, in elementary, I grew up in an area where given circumstances, you probably won't live beyond 25 years. And there's a lot of talk about trauma and depression in, in, in those kind of lyrics. Then you think about the time of Kanye West and Kid Cudi, Man on the Moon, where it's a bit more obvious up until what we have emo hip hop. And emo hip hop, they're not even covering it. They're talking about feelings. They're talking about depression, suicidal ideation. So the little peeps, the um, XXX tentacions, the juice world, and they are more obvious and intentional about it. But they also talk about self-medicating um, with drugs. And so with hip hop, it's about balance. I wish I could say everything is positive. So some people, you know, and some patients tell me this, that when they listen to these kind of lyrics and they're hearing people like, oh, this, you know, rapper is talking about it, it validates their feelings. But then you can argue that just as positive visual imagery is painting a positive picture, is there the possibility of a contagion effect? Which means if I'm rapping about suicide, depression, and drug use, could that have an impact on others? And let's not forget, um, unfortunately, you know, people like Little Peep died, you know, you know, you, you know, basically passed away. You know, I understand it was due to, you know, due, due to fentanyl. And so we, we have this paradox there, you know, about, you know, whether this, this talking about it, how healthy it is, if you are vulnerable, you know, some people find it helpful, others don't find it so much helpful. What do you think around that? As someone that's so involved in, in psychology, mm. do, you, do you experience it as unhelpful? Generally, for, from the patients, and this is a small sample of the patients I've seen, most of the patients I've discussed it with have been fans of hip-hop and they found it quite helpful. Mm. So I've had a patient, for example, I remember speaking to a particular patient, he was unable to describe how he felt but I noticed that basically he was wearing some fly adidas kicks and I had a fly hoodie on and I just said I didn't do pop he said yes then I'm like okay then he was like do you want me to spit I'm like yeah spit by the way to Katrina's viewers if you're not hip-hop fans means to rap and he basically rapped about all his vulnerabilities in his mental problems and I'm like oh that's quite sad and then it's like, oh, I've got some other stuff. And then he rapped about his resilience, how he navigated his mental problems. So generally, it's been positive. And I, I think we've got to be open with our patients who listen to any genre of music. Um, we've got to be honest about, do they find it helpful? How they find it helpful? Why they find it helpful? And to be honest, if they 
find some of it difficult, really. But the patients I've discussed it with generally have found it to be positive because they think it validates their feelings. They think about coping strategies. And it's nice to know that they're not alone, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah that they're, they're not alone. Like there, there's a whole culture of people feeling the same. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to ask around that as well, as well as lyrics. One thing I noticed with hip hop is that things like sampling. Um, yes. Is there something very deliberate about the samples getting used and how they're used and why and how they're put together? Well, whether we look at the grades of people who sample, whether it's a Jay Diller or a Pete Rock, often, you know, before, you know, in terms of sampling, your ability to take an old, you know, song and remake it. And, you know, the Kanye West of this world, the Johnny Blazes are good. And, you know, we talk, we talk about the, 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 the newer ones, people like Alchemist. But, you know, sometimes what you do is you go for a vibe. So often for the old school ones, they, re- they remember, like, listening to music, whether it's an R&B or a soul sample, and remember how that made them feel, whether they were playing it at cookouts or in their mom's kitchen and what was going on. And so when you take a sample like that and then you put put hip-hop lyrics on top of it, you're talking about not just the lyrics but the music, you understand? And that's very, very important because if you listen to emo music, it's very trance, it's very dark, you know, if you listen to music, so, you know, there's a whole movement of, like, for example, lean, you know, lean is very controversial. So people that use like up and they talk about self-medicating for mental problems. When you listen to some of the music, like music like DJ Screw, um, the music is slowed down. So they're rapping very, very slow. And the music is supposed to almost be a, a reflection of what it feels like when you take on lean, which is um, cough mixture mixed with promethazine. So that vibe, so sometimes you go for that particular vibe, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost giving you a kind of visceral experience of what Absolutely. It's like. Yeah. I can imagine that helps with things like empathy or, or encouraging yes. passion and empathy. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Wow. And you yourself, you mentioned Tupac, and, and I know that you're a huge fan of Tupac. And mm-hmm. I wonder why why him specifically for you. I think for 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 Tupac was a was a very controversial and I would say dividing figure. But let's think about where Tupac came from. So Tupac, his background is very interesting. So he actually grew up, I believe, in New York. His mother was a Black Panther, um, a Fenichek, and unfortunately, she had um problems with crack cocaine. So Tupac was exposed to both the you know the polit- strong political message of the Black Panthers, but he had also hung around the pimps, you know, people with addictions and stuff like that. And so with Tupac, you can get a very, very political message, but you can also get a very gangster message. 
So you see so many different aspects of it. Not all positive, I need to say, but I felt his lyrics had a depth to them. You understand? Whether you look at an album like um, Me, Me, Me Against the World or All Eyes on Me, there's just, you know, there's just something about what Pat brings into the picture, whether it's changes, you know, you know, as you know, changes, you know, things like, can a brother get a, um, you know, I'm, um, my stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch. Cops give me a damn, um, cops don't give a damn about a Negro, put a trigger, he's a, you know, he's a hero. It's just the way Tupac brings his lyrics together and the stuff he's talking about. There's a dopeness in it. And I think with Tupac, it's not just the lyrics, but it's also how he says it. So when, what you have with a lot of Tupac fans is when he says, back in elementary, there's a pain. So in, in hip hop, there's, there's, there's this stuff called prosodic intonation. So prosody, so when you say things like, brothers, can you feel me? There's a grief you feel. And when he says, He's like, like, brothers, I really want you to feel me. And with Tupac, that prosodic intonation just gets across. And that's what I like about Tupac. It's hitting you. The song is hitting you. His voice is hitting you. The lyrics are hitting you. And there's a depth in each of those aspects, you know. Where people shoot Tupac down is like, oh, he didn't have the sickest flow. Like, say, a Biggie Smalls. But with Tupac, I think Tupac wanted every word to hit you. So I think... All the other stuff is really giving you a, a, a big picture of, of Tupac. And so for me, that's why Tupac was my favorite. Tupac is someone that we have to remember, he actually went to the School of Performing Arts with J.J. Pinkett Smith in Maryland. So you can imagine he could act. He, he, he had the political aspect about him. And there was the, um, you know, there was the stuff about the gangster stuff. But even then, he actually wrote a... a, a a manual to try and, and bring an ethical code to gangs so that they weren't gang banging in areas where there were children. So I felt that Tupac would have evolved to have been more of a political leader if he lived for longer in, enough, really. Yeah, because he was only 25, wasn't he? Yes, yeah, around that yeah, it's, it's odd thinking about that, actually, because you're thinking when you said, I think earlier in this interview, you said a lot of them, wouldn't live beyond that sort of age. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, I was interested as well in the difference between the East Coast hip hop and the West Coast hip hop, mm. and whether you've seen differences in the messaging or whether it has an impact on mental health in different ways. I don't think so, <laughs> because. I grew up in the 90s where there was the whole, yes, the sounds were different. So West Coast, you know, the G-Funk era, you had that. New York, lots, probably lots of soul samples, you understand, and all that. But generally, I think as long as they're dope lyrics, because or people, 
people who are very superficial will be like, oh, you know, West, you know, East Coast, they're more dope lyrically. I don't agree that you have Raskas, you've got the game who as lyrical as the rest of them. Um, you know, I just think it's about the message in it. And generally, particularly now, you have a lot of people taking on the South sound. Like ASAP Rocky, for example, when, you know, his albums was very influenced by the South side. So those things don't really matter. For us that grew up back then, we like to believe there were major differences. I guess now I think about, I think they all talk about mental health. You understand? I've given you examples of West Coast artists. I've given you examples of, you know, East Coast artists that, that, that basically talk about it. So I don't think it necessarily matters, really. But obviously, they will talk about their experiences. So during West Coast, during that whole gangster era, yes, you think about the crack cocaine, you think about areas like Oakland, Compton. There was a lot of gang affiliation, so that will come more in the music. But that's just a, a, a small part of West Coast. There are other aspects of West Coast you know, music. There are people like Kendrick Lamar, you understand, you know, and you, you, you basically he'll hear his story. He's as lyrical as a New York um, rapper, but he's got a story to tell, you know, about, you know, what it's like living in that environment. But there's also stuff for mental health, you know. So I think it's all mixed up, really, you know. And we, let's not forget, in New York, they had gangs too. So I don't think it's as clear-cut as people make it out to be, really. Mm. Would you see a difference, I guess, between, because what you're talking about is the US and how that translates to British culture here? So the honest truth is UK culture is coming up to its own. We've uh, Personally now, the UK hip hop scene is fantastic. I think it's quite creative. It's not as commercialized as the US. So you're having rappers that can that are still able to rap, whether you have like a pot of paper and then the different genres. You've got drill, you've got the abracadabras, the pasalus, you've got Central C, you've got LD who's just come out of jail. And yes, people will talk about, oh, drill can be negative, but they're also telling their stories. You can only talk about what it is. And yes, there has to be responsibilities. For me, I always like to see rappers evolve. Okay, you've lived this life, You've seen a better way. Is that going to be reflected in, in the music? You've got older people like Gigs there. You've got Kano. You've got Dave, for example. Mm. Psychodrama is a fantastic album where, you know, each track, it, you know, it's based on him seeing a psychotherapist and it's talking on a lot of psychological material. So I would argue that that is taken on. Okay, Little Sims. Little Sims is a fantastic rapper. Her album, was it Introverted, Introvert? That really talks about a lot of mental health issues, what it's like to be an introvert, and the whole psychology behind it. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the UK scene is in a very good and strong place like that. Um, there was also the, what's it? There was the album by Crept and Conan, where they were talking a lot about mental health, you know, Broski, there's a track called Broski. So it's, it's in the UK scene. The UK scene is at a very exciting um, stage right now.
sinners in a church. I see sinners in a church. Sometimes I might be introvert. There's a war inside. I hear battle cries. Mothers burying sons. Young boys playing with guns. The devil's a liar. Fulfill your wildest desires. Isn't that interesting you said some psychodrama? Um, Dave's album. Dave's yeah. album, psychodrama. Because uh, just again there, the imagery of that and the connection with um, and with techniques used in, in psychotherapy, psychodrama being one of Absolutely. Them. Yeah, it's, it's quite fascinating. And the fact that this is already understood and known without, without mm. um, even before it's been categorised into mm. these jargons. But... Um, yeah, that's what I think is so interesting about it. I was just thinking about, you know, I was getting kind of flashbacks almost as you were speaking to some memories I had of being on a psychiatric ward in Halston in London. And I was in, I was sitting in on some of the art therapy groups. They were kind of open groups and people were engaging with art materials. And just thinking about what that would have been like if um, had there been sort of, well, I know they have music therapists, but whether whether hip hop had been involved in that and some of the storytelling that was coming out mm. from um, listening to the patients. And I can, yeah. I can picture it. I can imagine that it, it would really fit the, the process because um, especially with some of the the patients there that were experiencing psychosis i i remember so that is happening so i don't know if you know key changes okay so i all i'm just going to say is key changes becky will talk more on that because we key changes is a fantastic organization they help patients to make beats and they would some of the patients are able to talk about their experiences through rapping you know dance hall lyrics you should check them, support their work. Key changes, key. It's a shameless plug. Yeah. Key changes. Uh, exactly. Really yeah. good organization. But Becky will tell you more okay. and about the, the work we've done with them. Because people often mention research, research. The way I look at it, it's more about public health education. So we comb the lyrics, we analyze the lyrics and look for mental health themes. Um, we're also looking at things like refining psychotherapies, so having those discussions, um, whether it's things like discussing emotional anchoring. So when Tupac goes back in elementary, a private misery, does that, it's for young people who can, who might not necessarily express their selves in language. They might be able to express their emotions in, oh, that's how I felt. I felt that pain when Tupac said that. So refining psychotherapies, teaching medical students, you know, scientists, you understand? And generally, research, some of the neuroscience research, Becky can talk about that. So, yeah, and we're quite excited about it. Hip-hop has a lot to teach people, really, if, they, if they're just open to it, really. Well, just listening to you, I, I've already felt like it's, it's unlocked something. You know, I'm really intrigued to kind of go away and listen to more of some of the people you've mentioned you bring an excitement to it um it's so fruitful a topic and it's expanding so thank you and it's global too because we recently did a talk in Romania and it's it it was in Cluj and a lot of the so it was a medical student conference it's called Hard Cluj another shameless blog (laughs) but um they get people that they think are innovators in field to speak and I remember speaking about them and just bringing hip-hop but also being able to bring up like the 
the plight of Romanian Roma community there. And the medical students were brilliant, very open to new ideas. But then from a hip hop lyric, being able to have that kind of discussion. And like I said, I see, I bring my hip hop swag to work. I, you, you understand? And I think I know how it helps, how people are attracted to it. So yeah, yeah. we definitely, Becky and I do take it seriously. Becky brings her hip hop swag to whatever she brings to. What with with the work she does as well. Yes. <laughs> so remember hip hop psych at hip hop psych, you know, H I P H O P S Y C H. Please tweet us, follow us. You know, yeah. Yeah, I will do absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your time. That's been fantastic. To be honest, it, I just love the questions. So I like freestyling. So so I like the fact that I could see you were freestyling your questions. I like thinking on my feet. So you get the best interviews that way. Perfect. Okay, then. Thank you. And next up is Becky Ingster. You two knew each other. I know that you developed Hip Hop Psych together and it seems that you met through your academic uh, journeys. So I wanted to, what I did initially with Akeem in the interview was I read out all his credentials. So what I might do is I'll read out all of yours as well, of, of what I know anyway, because I think it's really interesting to really get a sense of your backgrounds and the academic study and rigour that's gone underneath this, that this this isn't just a whimsy thing. It's got science behind it. You know, it's fascinating. Yeah. So obviously you're the co-founder of Hip Hop Psych, but you're essentially, you're a neuroscientist at the Department of Psychiatry at Cambridge University. And before that you had done, um, so you did your undergraduate degree in psychology at the Uni of Toronto. And during that time, you were publishing on neurogenetics um, at the Centre of Addiction and Mental Health. Um, and then you came to the UK and went to Oxford University to do your PhD in molecular neuropathology and since then you worked in various places including you've got Imperial College, UCL, Institute of Psychiatry and I was looking at the areas that you were working in so neuroimaging, advanced statistical modeling of imaging, genetics data and epigenetics. Um, so, and then currently you're looking at epidemiology and population neuroscience, particularly interested in youth language and culture and how social media influences mental health and how it relates to neuroscience data. <laughs> so <laughs> fascinating stuff. I was wondering maybe if you were able to explain a bit about these terms, what is neuroscience, what is neuroimaging, when you talk about neuroscience data, what are you referring to? Okay, okay, so that's a great question. And yeah, that took me back memory lane a little bit there. <laughs> feeling, feeling a bit old, but that's all right. Um, so yeah, neuroscience. Um, I really started from the bottom, like Drake style, and it can be anything from looking at the, the genetic factors, uh, the proteins and the 
mRNA, all this stuff that goes flying around that the genes produce. Um, and that's kind of what I did. I just built my journey up from the tiniest um, like molecules and things like that. Um, and then I just got more and more curious about, okay, well, what do these proteins do? Let's go look in the brain uh, in terms of imaging people in the real world and, you know, putting, I've scanned thousands of brains. And when you meet the people before you put them in the scanner for research, I just, I loved that human connection before putting them in the scanner, uh, especially working with uh, older populations. Um, when they are so cognitively intact and emotionally like uh, just just present really present and then you see their brains everyone's different sometimes there's not as much brain for some people than others but it almost didn't matter because it was like the human connection and the brain just varied so much but it was just it was really great so um, I, I loved all that kind of stuff but um, once I started working with the human uh, kind of lens uh, I just thought about about making more impact. Um, and that's kind of when uh, I went into music um, in terms of like linking music with, with the brain. Um, I think there's a ton of ways that you can unpack it. So I'm happy to kind of break it down in different examples uh, if, if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we can do that. And what I might do after that is take you back a bit to where you're interested in hip hop first came from and so we, we can go into it that way if that's if that works for you yeah absolutely absolutely so um yeah hip-hop I've loved it since age kind of five six um and just I didn't have much exposure to it so I had to do a lot of hunting through um you know like cassettes if anyone remembers that word yeah. this is like before hashtags um but I had to just kind of find it through magazines and um, I was just always drawn to the the culture and the messages and now I realize it was also the mental health messages and the resilience so I was just in awe of how powerful this art form was and how uh, the ability to describe a situation in in such poetic and very grounded ways so I'll come back later and tell you really precise examples of how public health and messages in hip-hop literally link in quantitative ways so like it really is speaking truths um, and realities of so many people on so many issues. So I think I was really drawn to that. In some ways, some people watch the news uh, to get their information, but this was my kind of connection to a world that I just, I wanted to be a part of um, from mental health. I've always worked in mental health and I've always loved hip hop. So, but I think it was when, when I met Akeem, I had moved to the UK. I had shifted to reggae quite a bit and he'll he would just like yeah he's got a lot to say about that but like I just I I didn't have the the same connection with hip-hop that I once had in North America um so thank goodness Akeem sh shook me and woke me up and said come on get back into it um and so yeah from that point on that's when we started having these conversations in like the, the coffee areas of the department of psychiatry uh, in Oxford. And I was like, one day it's just like, you know what, we should do a study where we put freestyle rappers in the scanner and we functionally uh, image their brain. Cause I know there's some really awesome stuff to unpack there. And, and we just kind of left it at that. But then years later in 2012, of a paper comes out and it's, it's exactly that and it's like nature or something so again I was just kicking myself I'm like why didn't we do this so yeah I think from that point on I remember us sitting in my office 
and thinking, uh, sorry, flash forward, Cambridge now. Um, and we reconnected and we're like, we've got to do this. The word hip hop, the word psychiatry, uh, neuroscience, etc. We were just literally sitting in front of my computer and then just how do we do this? And we didn't know, but we wanted to do it. And now looking back, it's almost our 10 year anniversary and it's, it's blown my mind. And I know Akeem would say the same, all the stuff that we've unpacked and I think like pioneered for the next generation to just absolutely grab and go with it. it it's mind blowing. Like it's unbelievable. So yeah, I can, I can walk you through a couple uh, examples of the the neuroscience stuff but just yeah yeah just before I do I just want to give like a shout out generally to the arts because we're talking about hip-hop we love hip-hop we live and breathe it but at the same time we recognize that it could be any kind of art form really so it could be um, you know some in some cases you have music which could be used before surgery mm-hmm. um, as a, like an anesthetic to reduce cortisol levels, to reduce stress used during surgery, after surgery, um, choir singing with cancer patients, uh, group drumming, all these kind of uh, positive benefits across the board of the arts, music, etc. So that's just kind of like to shout out to the arts. Um, and in terms of music, um, there has been a meta analysis, which is just simply gathering up a bunch of papers, academic papers, and in over a hundred and I think, yeah, over a hundred papers, randomized control trials. So, you know, serious business. Um, they found that music interventions were very effective. So that's just a relief that it's been captured this information in, in an evidence-based way. Um, and what they found was that it was improving outcomes both psychologically and physiologically. So we're, we're talking, uh, you know, decreased uh, depressive symptoms or anxiety, but also things like physiology. So heart rate was one in particular that that was a, an outcome that was very important. Uh, and I'll come to that because that's a really big deal for, um, for hip hop. Um, and yeah, so getting into the brain, if you, if you imagine your favorite song and imagine that favorite moment, it could be the hook, the chorus, or just that, that line that you really love what's happening in the buildup to that is that your brain is doing so much. So the music, the sound comes through your ears, obviously, and it goes into your auditory cortex and it's trying to combine all this like pitch rhythm, just all these different things together. And it's using working memory, the front part of the brain, the frontal cortex to really remember what was just heard and to make sure everything lines up in the past and then certain parts of the brain, like um, the dorsal striatum, I don't normally use that terms, I go deeper in my brain. So that's like a general term. Uh, but we've got activation of like the anticipation, it's getting really exciting as you get to that part of the song that you really love, and you get like a dopamine surge. And as soon as you get to that favorite line, it then shifts into the ventral striatum. And so all of that really just to say that, like, the music help it just creates this surge of dopamine and a lot of other molecules all over the brain and it's just this, it's just a wonderful way to um uh it just to shake your brain up and yeah it's, it's really why people love it so much um, when it comes to hip-hop and that study that i had mentioned um in 2012 this is a really interesting one because they 
looked at exactly what I had proposed to Akeem, where they wanted to look at spontaneous artistic creativity. So um, what they did was they compared a group of professional freestyle rappers. Uh, they compared those who would spontaneously freestyle. And then the control group was looking at people who were just going to do a conventional rehearsed kind of performance. And this is all happening inside a brain scanner. And they're looking at functional mag magnetic resonance imaging. So, um, and by freestyle, just for people who uh, are outside of the hip hop kind of community culture, this is just basically asking someone to rapidly select novel words and make them rhyme in phrases. So anyone can do it. it, it you don't even need a beat. Uh, and it's very tricky. But what was neat about their findings in the brain was that um, there are certain parts of the brain at the front, kind of where your forehead is, uh, and that's kind of the CEO of the brain. So that's the boss. That's like, you know, sitting there, always calling the shots, making the decisions. But there are different members on the board sitting at this table in the front of the brain. So you've got in the middle of your forehead, uh, that's the medial prefrontal cortex. And this is important. I won't go too deep. Um, but on the kind of temporal, like, uh, yeah, the temple area, at the front of your forehead, that's the dorsal lateral. So the middle and the side, they speak to each other constantly. Uh, they're on the same board calling the shots. But when someone is freestyle rapping, what happens is that the medial, so the middle part of the front of the brain, shoots up in terms of like activity. It gets so excited and it's just massively increased firing neurons. Um, and yet the dorsal lateral is very unusual is going down it's decreased brain activation so you have one shooting up and one suppressing the the brain signal and what's interesting that like it's already interesting because they're dissociated so normally they, they fire together and they make decisions together but the medial prefrontal cortex the authors propose that it might be bypassing this kind of executive uh, decision making um, and just going straight to regions that are uh, normally regulated first. And so it's just, it's kind of gives you a bit of a window into creativity um, and just how the brain, the different brain regions that might be involved with that kind of um, the cognitive flexibility, I guess you could say. Um, and another interesting finding from that paper was that when you look at um, the connectivity uh, so now I'm not talking about just brain regions, but like the actual, um, the connections, they were finding that it was sort of a lot of other regions were activated when you started to look at one part of the brain and say, okay, what other parts are lighting up and other areas like the amygdala, which is like involved with emotions. Um, lots of stuff was happening when they started to unpack that and look at all the connections. So, but I guess the, the takeaway from that is that the, the medial prefrontal cortex, that's kind of regulating um, like motivational incentive, intentionality, uh, whereas the dorsolateral was the executive control, consciously monitoring, adjusting things uh, before acting out on explicit goals. Uh, so it's just really interesting to see how perhaps in clinical populations or people uh, with, with mental health problems, are these regions that are being tapped into, uh, can they be used for 
potential interventions or in clinical contexts? And I would completely argue, yes, 100%. So, um, yeah, and so that that's kind of the brain on a high level. And it's not always easy to just get a brain scanner. It's really expensive. And it's not exactly the most uh, natural environment for someone to want to freestyle in. I think it's probably one of the weirdest, apart from maybe like a rocket ship or something. But like, yeah, so I think what we wanted to do at Hip Hop Psych was to work with uh, an environment and a safe space where young people go to do their freestyle, to do their um, their hip hop lyric creation, go into the studio and things like that. So we work with um, an amazing uh, social prescribing site called Key Changes in London, mm-hmm. uh, and they provide in-reach services for young adults, um, young people, adults, and who are receiving treatment on acute intensive care, forensic rehabilitation, psychiatric wards um, across the UK. And we, we just love, we love what they do. And so we wanted to create a study with them um, that was ethically approved and everything. Uh, And what we did was we worked with eight participants and we sat down, we'd talk about hip hop, and we asked them questions about their emotions. And then we um, asked if it was okay, if we could monitor their heart rate and use our phone to look at their heart rate in real time while they wrote their lyrics. Um, and then they went into the recording studio. So it's kind of looking at the emotional side of things, the physiology side of things as well. And of course the, the lyrics and the, uh, the person. So it's so unbelievably important in mental health to be um, led by the person in front of you. And of course you wanna capture what we call objective data, like heart rate, um, and just a ton of other stuff. But at the end of the day, you need to know from that person how they feel. So one of our participants, um, it, the word hope comes up time and time again, and I'll touch on it um, in a bit. But um, it, the quote that he had, and I'm just going to pull it up. because, uh, Yeah, if, if you've been in a medium secure ward for 15 years, there's not a lot left. Music is the thing giving us hope. It's the one thing that in spite of like psychosis or whatever, you can still express yourself and make sense of things. And I just love, really love that quote. Um, So yeah, we worked with these participants and it was first of all, amazing that they were really okay about data and I'm a data scientist. So I was really unsure about how they would feel about having their heart rate monitored and you know, someone from an academic background sitting in front of them, watching them, writing observations. You know, it was definitely an experiment to, uh, from different perspectives. Um, but it was just amazing. At the end of their study, I would show them their heart rate and all the data, all the squiggly lines. And I said, this is when you went in the studio um, and then you, you made a mistake and the heart rate dropped, you tried again, and then you finished your track and your heart rate plummeted and you just kind of had this post-take relaxation moment um and I even had a clinician say to me once well their heart rate's messing around uh, like so much by maybe 40 or so bpms where just spike up uh, because they're walking around he said and I was just blown away that um yeah sometimes people just try and 
discredit stuff like that, the data. Um, but the person was standing still in the recording studio. That was all physiology. Like that was all meaning. It was so real, the, the setting for them. Um, so what was also nice was that you could look at the lyrics. So we do uh, work involving natural language processing. So you can actually start to uh, use automated computer computational stuff to um, pull out stuff from the words that people are saying. You could look at their sentiment um, and all kinds of things. So again, we could pinpoint right down to second what they were doing so were they writing or were they resting uh were they where were they looking were they pausing and thinking um and and tag their heart rate which was jumping around all over the place even when they were sitting down to be honest and sometimes for one participant they might have um they're writing 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 and then there was a sudden stop and they pause and then their heart rate would spike and then it would drop down again and they'd continue writing. So it was just really powerful to see how in the moment you can be with the person, with the data and with their narrative. I think that's like the bottom line for me, because if you can have all the kind of uh, objective data you want, but if you don't know what they're thinking and feeling, um, then you can't anchor that in a ground truth, what we, we call in data science, you need that ground truth. So yeah, we had participants who were talking about heartbreak, um, staying up all night, couldn't sleep. And yet some were saying, look, I'm not gonna write anything about mental health. And then sure enough, second line in, interpersonal relationships, um, all kinds of stuff coming out of it, sleep issues. It's just really interesting to see. But in terms of evidence base, even in, the eight subjects that we worked with, these eight participants, we found a significant reduction in negative affect. So what that just means is um, you have positive affect and negative. They were already so happy to be in that recording studio environment. That was their safe space and in their creative flow state. So yes, positive emotions did go up uh, a little bit. It wasn't significant because they're pretty much in their favorite place. So, but um, what we were able to do with this social prescribing um, like experiment was show significant reductions in that negative affect, which is really powerful because often you need a lot of um, a lot of participants to do that. But that's the power of music. And so we're, we're writing that up at the moment. And I guess another thing just to say about their heart rates was that um, there were patterns across people but no one was really the same it wasn't just like a heart rate machine where it just spits out similar things we saw somewhere it would be pretty steady across the entire time some went as soon as they went into the recording studio shot up and then went down as I mentioned before um, but there are definitely different types of heart rate patterns going on depending on the person so yeah we're going to follow that up and explore um, more of that stuff but yeah, I'll stop there. Sorry. I just love <laughs> I'm I'm just mesmerized by it. I'm really interested. I'm really grateful that you that you went into the detail of it because it, it's so fascinating. And um and I was gonna ask when you mentioned that you're writing it up, do you know when that will be published where people can find it? Yes, yes. Um so right now we're writing a book chapter for hip-hop psych so that's my priority number one but then priority number two is to to get that into the publication so academia is so slow which is painful um but i would say in the next six months 
um, would be, you know, I, I hope, I hope uh, we were meant to have it out before COVID. So, and then COVID happened and everything changed, but yeah, I definitely want that piece out um, because it's, it's, there's, it speaks about trust before technology and it speaks to the narrative being the, the ground truth. And, and it's time for people to realize that yeah, this data has to get personal without um, breaching privacy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm so interested in what you mentioned there a moment ago about how you, the um, the thought may have been that going into a setting like a, a psychiatric ward, an intensive care unit by the sounds of it, or medium secure wards, those sorts of settings, as, as you said, as an academic coming in with data and conducting an experiment, um, the fear or, or apprehension that that might have exacerbated some I don't know, would you say like paranoia or something like that? And in actual fact, what you discovered was um, quite the opposite, that there was a real move towards it and an excitement for it, which in itself sounds really like a real insight, actually, as to how someone experiencing something like psychosis is interacting with the world in different ways and understands what's happening more than we might have previously given credit for. Oh, yes, like 100%. Same goes with um, the use of social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was speaking with clinicians, you know, a couple years back, and just hearing things like patients can't use social media. It just made me angry and sad at equal mm-hmm. amounts. Um, and I just think the same with this, that someone, okay, I I appreciate there might be cognitive capacity issues, or even, you know, there's a lot going on to make things work. But I, that was, I think, probably the most pivotal moment of my academic career, showing the first participant, their heart rate data, I I just, I had 100% of their attention, their interest, It, it, the conversation was flowing. So I'm, I'm really confident that we can definitely use data, but it has to best serve the person. We can't just take data and personalize their experience and say, I think this is the next thing you should look at or that kind of stuff. That's not really how I see it. But I think that the person who generates the data should then decide how they want to consume their own data or understand their own data. Um, And uh, like, I'm glad you slowed down on that point to unpack it a bit more because there was one participant in particular who she just changed my worldview on academia. Mm -hmm. And she was, her body language was really shut down, closed off, no eye contact. I didn't know if it was something for her situation or, or if it was me. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty about it, but a lot of respect and, and a sense of calm. But um, I went through the emotion questionnaire uh, with her and I asked her, because this is called the PANAS questionnaire. So you go through a lot of emotions and you just say, how do you feel about this emotion on a scale of one to five? And one being not much and five being like absolutely feeling it. And so I asked her, you know, all these words and we get to the word excited. And I didn't sense anything that was exciting about what we were doing just just by judging in incorrectly judging and she said five but she said it in a way that was like five like really closed down 
the tone um, didn't suggest that she was completely and utterly excited to be there, but she was. She And then I was like, oh my goodness, like, I really judged that wrong because look where she is. She's in a recording studio. There's a grime artist who's the producer uh, in, in there and the environment, it, it may not have looked on the outside that it was exciting, but it just, it really rocked my world that, that data, that five, if you're a data scientist sitting by, by a computer in the lab and you see that, but you don't make the connection with her body language and the other things, um, it, it's just, you don't see the full picture. And what was interesting was her heart rate was very, very different again from um, some of the other participants. And it wasn't, necessarily lining up in this perfect way that you would try and just want it to as a data scientist um, with with bias and at the end of the study we sat down and I said you know we're done the study now and um, I I was listening to her um, while she was rapping her lyrics and I was just like it sounds like you're in a good place because you're yeah, you're just in a good way for X, Y, Z reasons. And she said to me, no, none of that is true. Um, I just put it down because I guess that's where I kind of want to be, but I'm totally not there. So again, it just blew my mind that we have all this different information. And if we don't pull it together and put this, the person in the center of it and their narrative, but understand the context of the narrative as well. It's just, you. it's a huge risk of getting it wrong, especially in the digital age where people just wanna, you know, garbage in, garbage out with data. So yeah, yeah, thank you for slowing that point down because it changed how I see and interact with people. I guess also that, that um, brings out the point about emotion as you're talking about the person behind behind the data and the narratives of people I guess that goes to the heart of hip-hop in a way and I was going to ask whether um because my impression of hip-hop and and please excuse any ignorance because because there's a lot I don't know about hip-hop but my my what I do understand or what I've perceived maybe is a better way of expressing it is that the story of the person either the person singing or rapping or making the music the story is what's driving that and um, without the story it doesn't hang and it, it kind of maps onto what you're just saying there that, that the story is what's underpinning the elements of everything I just want to make sure I've got that correct and I'm not making assumptions no you're not and and I think if you don't mind I might go on a little bit of a monologue uh, thing here because the story and the words are so powerful um I'll I'll just start I'll start with a bit of like a couple examples. So this is unpublished uh, hip hop psych stuff and, and some of it's published. So I can send you anything if people want to read, but um, it, it flags up this term called street epidemiologists. So artists, especially in the early 90s, I'd argue, uh, they were mirroring society and they were looking at, they're basically calling out public health messages. Um, and so what you can start to do is look at the words, the lyrics, of all the songs from hip hop of all time. So really grab all that data and say, well, what are the artists saying? And does that map onto any kind of issue or societal 
um, reflection. What does this tell us? The reflection of societal change. So um, unpublished, but we're going to get this out. And this is a neat one. So um, the word broke in hip hop lyrics, you know, all lyrics, all songs across uh, all decades. Um, it's an important word for hip hop. And the, the use of the word, we see what's called an inflection point or a change or an, like an increase a spike in the use of this word we see it in the early 90s um, and then we again we see this inflection point in a spike after the global financial crisis so we see in the early 90s there was a recession and you can literally pin down that a lot of new york artists were talking about poverty and the the poverty rates in new york city are, they resemble or they're very very similar to the curve you see in the use of the word broke. So we're seeing a peak in the word broke in uh, 95, and that's mapping on to poverty rates in New York City, 95. Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis. When I was dead broke, man, I couldn't picture this. 50 inch screen, money green leather sofa. Got two rides, a limousine with the chauffeur. Phone bill about 2G flat. No need to worry, my accountant handles that And my whole crew is lounging Celebrating every day, no more public housing Thinking back on my one-room shack Now my mom pips a act with mix on her back And she loves to show me off, of course Smiles every time my face is up in the sauce We used to fuss when the landlord dissed us No heat, wonder why Christmas missed us Birthdays was the worst days Now we sip champagne when we thirsty uh, Damn right, I like the life I live Cause I went from negative to positive And it's all And if you don't know, now you know That's just one example, but you can take it further Because the word We know that money and mental health Are so interlinked And COVID taught us anything, it's that Economic crisis, health crisis Is a disaster um, but after a, a, a recession, the onset of a recession, we see this word broke goes up. We also saw the word suicide going up. Mm -hmm. So again, this is unpublished stuff, but um, we're going to get that out. Um, and it's just a ton of examples. Again, we see during the opioid crisis, uh, Percocet, Xanax, we're starting to see important lyrics or uh, sorry, word uh, words are being more used or there's an increased use of the words like Xanax, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. Um, and we start to see increase in like uh, Oxycontin painkiller sales and stuff. Or we see, I think in 2012, it was like one bottle um, of prescription for every American. And we see a spike in the lyrics. So the artist, and sadly, in some cases leads to, um, to, to death or overdose or, or other um, things, it's um, related around that period as well. So I think that the lyrics and the words really do uh, link with societal change or trends. So we have a drug paper that we looked at. We compared what a GP might say for drug terms like ecstasy, alcohol, cannabis, codeine, or promethazine. Um, and then we shook it up and said, okay, well, let's compare that to what hip hop lyrics would normally contain for those drug terms. So like Molly is ecstasy. They'd say liquor, not alcohol, weed, not cannabis and um, syrup, not promethazine and, and codeine back in the day. Now they're 
<laughs> the start, rappers are starting to do that. But um, and you just you see the signals come alive and you get to see all these different changing trends over time, depending on what words you use. But it has to be words that are from the community if you want to start to see a true signal. Um, so I think, yeah, the power of these words can be both positive or negative. Um, and I think that's what we want to try and do with Hip Hop Psych is recognizing the negative, we want to build on the positive. And so there's this concept in um, psychology, the Werther effect and the Papageno effect. So, um, and I'm sure a lot of people know this, but the Werther effect, it's uh, when there is a, a suicide or yeah, when there's a suicide uh, reported by the media, digitally, social media or conventional, um, there's an increase in emulation of suicides afterwards. Um, and so that's kind of the, the negative side of things. But with Hip Hop Psych, we're really interested in the Papageno effect where what if you chose words or things that were um, more linked to suicide prevention, hope, resilience and that kind of thing and so what we started to do was um, we teamed up with a startup called Spoke and we're working with hip-hop artists and sorry I should backpedal so Spoke is a music-led mindfulness app um, just helping people strengthen their mindset um, they are artist-led and they combine like world-class musician and lyricism that they, they really want high-quality production. Um, but what we do is we work with their team and we work with uh, signed hip hop artists. And we talk about things like biopsychosocial model. Um, we talk about neuroscience. We talk about anything really that they want to. And we always anchor it with a hip hop context. So we have a Kid Cudi quote where we talk about complicated grief and how Kid Cudi the character in his song was finding it really hard to let go because he was still loving the person and benefiting and getting that dopamine rush from the person uh, who was no longer there. So we talk about a whole bunch of different things um, to help the artist um, just to, to open their mind to this, this way of thinking. Um, and then they do the, the most amazing translation to make it culturally like sensitive and just completely aligned with the language, the, just the way that, that young people, especially just want to be interacted with. And I promise my monologue's almost done, but um, the, there was a recent study in BMJ and they were showing that um, after one of the hip hop artists um, named Logic, he, um, he wrote the song uh, 1-800-SUICIDE and so what the uh, some academics wanted to do was they looked at this song and again, I had told Akeem, this is definitely, we could do this, but we're just so busy. We don't have time to publish stuff, but it was really great that they, they did this in a 30 day window after three events where he had sung this song. One of them was the Grammys, MTV awards and stuff. Um, they noticed that Lifeline, which is like a crisis uh, suicide prevention hotline, uh, they had over 9,000 uh, calls, additional calls. So it was an increase of 7% after people had watched the, the videos. Um, and then they also saw a corresponding suicide reduction of around 5% uh, below the expected number of suicides. So it was really interesting, again, to see that is living proof that an artist can 
these words are really powerful. And in the digital age, they scale. So they scale for better or worse. So that's with Hip Hop Psych, uh, working with Spoke to scale positive messages of hope, resilience, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. I've been on a low, I've been taking my time. I feel like I'm out of my mind. I feel like my life ain't mine. Who can relate? Woo! I've been on a low, I've been taking my time. I feel like I'm out of my mind. I feel like my life ain't mine. I want you to be alive. I want you to be alive. absolutely really fascinating and, and I remember when, when I was talking to Akeem he, he went through some of those resilience narratives with me and we were talking about the lyrics in Maino and you were looking at his lyrics of how he coped in his trajectory towards becoming a star but his time in prison and kind yeah. of creating visual positive imagery and um, saying things like I picture a Ferrari and I picture Obama and yeah kind of like he he went into the how those lyrics work emotionally with in terms of how the how the the artist is expressing it viscerally in their body and the actual words and the positive image and how that maps onto scientific understandings of what that does to the brain and how that's used in clinical settings often with things like CBT where people will map positive imagery and here are rap artists kind of um yes. rap artists, hip-hop artists doing that already mm -hmm. automatically and it's embedded within the the history and the culture it was already there it just yes. had a clinical language to go with it which I think is what you're you're saying also it, it's a completely that and um it's interesting that you brought up prison because before COVID, Akeem and I, we were, we were going into prisons and to link back to the whole, um, can people with mental health problems really appreciate complex medical language? And yes, yes, our best group was like working with this one prison in particular. And just when I use the word synaptic plasticity and just said that, look, brains don't cement and get stuck forever even if you feel like you might be stuck your brain can be rewired like literally neurons can grow in a couple of days if you just stick with it your brain is so plastic and it's just yeah and it really resonated with with a lot of the guys because and even the word synaptic plasticity and frontal cortex um, I had one guy come up at the end and he was just like, you know, I actually get out in a couple of weeks and I'm going to Google this stuff and I'm going to really look into this. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember the the officer was like ushering him to to leave um, with all the others. But it was just oh, it was frustrating because we were having this really cool neuroscience conversation. Um, but yeah, again, it was the power of hip hop that unlocked that because I think we were covering um, eight mile um, Eminem track, Lose Yourself. And there's so many messages of synaptic plasticity and the brain changing and um, resilience and stuff. So um, 
it just it yeah even things like epigenetics like how you can switch a gene on or off like a like a tap you know if you want the if you want it on then something comes over and they're just getting it and like your your life is a book uh, and it's just literally the words you write down are kind of like your dna sequence um but we were saying things like i have brown eyes and that it's just coded it's just in the dna you know that kind of stuff switch it to blue okay pop in some new DNA sequence. It's no big deal. So we were really kind of massively demystifying um, the medical messages just and making them accessible. But the door had to open with hip hop. It couldn't have just been, okay, we're here to talk about synaptic plasticity. Let's talk about Eminem. It would never, ever work that way. It had to be, we're going to talk about Eminem and then we're going to pull out some themes. And you just also reminded me that like with, with hip hop, and mental health together, we're fighting two stigmas. There is the stigmatization of hip hop. It's unbelievable. Like it really is. So everything that we churn out that's evidence-based is a big win for hip hop in our eyes. And yet it's frustrating because we know that the culture already knows that it's healing and that there's hope. But I think there's this misrepresentation and a bias for, for certain people to to view it as negative but hip-hop came from negative and turned into a positive and I'm sure Akeem talked about all of the risk factors and how people have overcome it just like Mano did like unbelievable success story but it's it's hard work still like Mano he, he definitely had uh he talked about later in life struggles so it's an ongoing thing resilience um and then of course the stigma with mental health which just hopefully is changing um and people are more openly addressing it as a result of COVID. Um, but there's still so much hard work to do because even public awareness of mental health, it, it, it's good in a way because it gets those people into safe spaces or, you know, maybe they weren't willing to speak or they didn't ever want to, to reach out to anyone or they hadn't even figured it out inside themselves yet. Um, but now they're, they're like on a good track to try and find some some help, but we have to make sure that the help is there. Um, the, the awareness is definitely in, increasing and improving, but we've got to make sure that we've got high quality support. So um, another thing that we're doing, we work with combat and um, this is uh, where we bring a lot of technology at the back end, but it's so human and community focused, but we look at, um, we use things like rhyme detection algorithms. So someone can freestyle for 15 seconds to a beat into their phone. And then what we do is we look at the words and we have like five keywords that can just, they pop up. And if you can use those keywords into your um, response, into your freestyle, then you get bonus points. So it's kind of making it fun and playful, but the, the data that you get from that, that you should be feeding back to the person, as I mentioned before, this has to go back to the person to give meaning to them. Um, it's, it's really powerful because we know uh, mental health is is hugely connected to language um, and things just like semantic co coherence and just lots of different things. So if we can start to then see uh, freestyle and the words people use with, a, with a, an ability to kind of head it towards a clinical potential innovative therapeutic technique, um, then what you can start to do is make those five keywords change over time and you can start to build someone's verbal skills verbal dexterity 
or you could even see, okay, there's been a decline possible onset of psychosis, but you're measuring words that have massive meaning to people. And it's not just a questionnaire about psychosis or something. It's just such, such a different way of seeing um, how to collect data and how to keep close to someone in a safe kind of respectful way. So, and sometimes it's not even the words you say, it's how you say it. So um, in a clinical term that we use vocal psychopathology, and if you ask someone, or there's been research, if you ask someone to add emotion into something they're telling you, it makes it, it's a stronger thing for you to use uh, as a data source. Uh, it's hard to unpack that one, so I won't get into it too much, but um, so you can really look at the tone, how someone says something that's so linked with mental health and well-being. Um, and then other things even as well, like so body movement detection, dance biometrics, you know, hip hop, body popping, um, all this kind of stuff, break dancing. It, it just lends itself to being measured and fed back to the person. So uh, yeah, yeah. So that's been you can start to actually use the data to create hypotheses and build an evidence base, uh, but but still making it so relevant to the person because that's what it's all about. You mentioned breakdancing there, and, and that brings me right to a question I had around the five elements of hip hop. And perhaps this speaks to why hip hop in particular has such an impact in relation to mental health. Because mm-hmm. I've understood the five elements are, if I've got them correct, MCing, DJing, breakdancing, graffiti, and knowledge. Is that mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. How, I don't know how you would break those things down, but kind of in terms of each of their impacts on mental health and the bigger picture, how do they work those five elements? Wow. Okay. That is, that's another <laughs> podcast. Okay. So, no, no, no. But um, um, like, I, I guess tying into what I just said about just t- the culture lends itself to so many ways to measure um, and to, to understand because we know body popping, breakdancing, it is so physical and yet physical health and mental health are so connected. Um, like again, of course, building an evidence base is important, but you know, this is, this is well established that, you know, being active, moving around, especially in social settings. Um, it's so uh, it's all about social connectedness. If anyone's ever gone to see a body body popping competition or break dancing, you feel part of the culture, even if you have never tried it before or whatever, you're just, you're welcome to be there and you can be part of it, even if you're just going to passively engage. But um, I think it's just, it's one of those rare genres that it offers you so much to look at so again like I said with the linguistics and the words and how you say it and the rawness of the emotion it's just it's incredibly powerful Um, another interesting thing is that Akeem and I we wrote a paper all about misinformation and and stuff happening during COVID like the hip-hop community coming together to provide resources but in some cases either spreading misinformation or trying to not spread it Um, And it was just interesting um, to look at just like the power of the community and spreading positive news. Um, It it was just, they were really effective at trying to create better 
health outcomes. Um, and we just, yeah, it, there's a lot of good stuff. I won't, I won't go into it because I, I kind of pulled back to hesitate because I want to get back to the other art forms. And then of course the graffiti stuff, um, just, you know, visual literacy, creativity, um, just self-expression being so important. Um, and the potential to bring digital into that is just like really powerful. Um, but of course, knowledge. And that's kind of where Akeem and I, um, we really, that's our bread and butter. That's, you know, we respect the culture so much and we try to bridge the medical community knowledge from that space with knowledge from hip hop, equal directions. Um, it really has to go back and forth. So we're just, we spend a lot of time in that knowledge um, space um, because it is, it's just incredibly powerful when you can share an insight and people get it. The, our Kendrick Lamar paper in 72 hours, it, it was reached, I think 1.3 million shares on Facebook. And it was just um, amazing to see such a positive set of messages talking even about like parental monitoring, um, peer pressure, literally the biopsychosocial model. Kendrick dropped it in three lines better than any psychiatrist I've ever, maybe, maybe Akeem could, could, could do that. But um, yeah, just, so I don't know. I think all the elements in their own unique ways uh, can, can just really facilitate positive change for mental health. Right. I and grew around some people living their life in bottles Granddaddy had the golden flask, backstroke every day in Chicago Some people like the way it feels, some people want to kill their sorrow Some people want to fit in with the popular, that was my problem I was in a dark room, loud tunes, looking to make a vow soon That I'ma get fucked up, filling up my cup, I see the crowd move Changing by the minute, and the record on repeat Took a sip, then another sip, then somebody said to me Nigga, why you babysitting, only two or three shots I'm I'ma show you how to turn it up a notch First you get a swimming pool full of liquor Then you dive in it's so fascinating hearing that because I'm thinking of myself as a psychotherapist and all the training that I have and what comes up in a room with a client and so much of what you said you know I hear it and it maps on for example the way the mind and body are connected in a therapy session I'll be looking at what a person is doing with their body and what they're feeling in different body parts and using movement and at the same time the awareness of impacts on each other the relational aspect and how we as individuals have an impact on society and in turn society impacts us it's so interesting how theoretically that comes up for me as I'm there working as a therapist and what you're naming are those exact components the social connectedness that you talked about the impact on each other the way that we move with our physical bodies and exert influence in the language that we speak with and the whole package the whole being more than just each individual component so you're exactly directly speaking to that yeah it's, it's well and and also the financial hardship I think again to tackle hip-hop stigma everyone just seems sorry I'm exaggerating okay some people seem to think that it's just about the bling and it's just about that stuff and Akeem's already tackled that by discussing the positive visual imagery um, but again the word money in hip-hop is it's up there it's one of the top words that's used all the time but it doesn't mean they're talking about bling all the time so there are financial hardships that are being talked about like I said with the the broke connection with public health societal uh, reflections it's just you know money and mental health go 
go so closely together. In one of Kendrick Lamar's tracks, he's talking about in Money Trees, he's talking about grief for the loss of his uncle and how he's buying a Louis belt to to heal his pain. So again, just bringing that financial um, perspective in as well. Uh, Hip hop is, it's so much more than uh, people see at the surface. There's just, and that's why Kim and I, we love to unpack this stuff because it's just, it just jumps out to us when we, given our expertise now, and given that Akeem and I, when we talk, we bounce ideas off each other and create this extra kind of level of interaction insight. Um, and it's just, it, it's so unbelievably clear when we look back on 10 years, um, how these connections are, they're solid. It's so solid. What I love about both you and Akeem is how you um, infuse and that comes across and it's really exciting to me because you're sort of exemplifying the power of that, that you're taking something academic, like when Akeem was talking about how he can um, encourage people to go into psychiatry by using something less dry and yeah connecting with people which is what I'm feeling from both of your interviews is that you're using that to impart your knowledge and create passion and that I think is interesting so yeah and also like I have to say um in academic settings a while back I was not ready or I was intimidated to merge arts and science. Mm -hmm. And it it might sound funny now, given all that we've done, but it just, there was this taboo in a way, or this, this, that, that doesn't work. It's not, it's not therapeutic. It's Mm -hmm. silliness. And that like breaking free from that and just getting out there and doing things and, um, like even doing neuroscience in the real world where I bring my EEG headset out and I just put it on people and stuff. It just, uh, it transformed the way I do what I do. And I'm much better off for that um, ever since linking those things. And I think Akeem and I, we just want to inspire the next generation of thinkers, young, old, whatever, people coming in from any angle. We want to inspire and, and, and show them direction and what what's possible um and so yeah it's just been a great 10 years and counting it's really I never would have thought we'd get this far it's it's amazing I I was listening to a lot of your your stuff like for example on George the Poet podcast and he he brought you on and um he I, I wrote down his quote because it seemed to speak to something you were talking about and and you before when you were talking about uh, money you had been talking about health and wealth the interrelationship between health and wealth and financial education and um, and he I wrote down what he said he said wraps a commodity adapted from poverty 
It should be owned by the streets, but it's owned by labels that make our own kind compete. From a minority, it attracts the majority. Rap's not music, it's a broadcasting service. <laughs> but I just, I, I wanted to say that because it sort of both directly and indirectly speaks to what you're bringing, but talks about the interrelationship of society and, and I guess the stigma of people, I'm imagining the stigma on hip hop feeds right back into the stigma around the whole culture that generated hip hop in the first place, the kind of the oppressions and the the historical narratives that, that lent themselves to people beginning to um, talk and develop oratory and describe pain in particular ways to the point that they succeed and then that gets slapped down again through through the prejudice. And I, I'm not being very clear, I don't think, but I, f I feel like that's kind of part of what you're saying and what George the Poet was saying, that the prejudice against hip hop is a symptom in itself of what these rappers and artists are talking about that they've experienced in their lives. Yeah, that, okay, George is way deeper than I could ever be. Like, <laughs> Like that, that I'd have to chew on that for a while, but, um, but no, it's so, it's so hard when you think about the globalization of hip hop. And when you think about this multi-billion dollar industry, you know, some would argue falling off the cliff or having so many subgenres that everyone's just so confused. That's like one kind of angle perspective, but for me, it always comes back to the individual mm -hmm. and someone with a, a mental health situation and it, like, I, I don't know, I, I just, I like to stay close to the mental health side of stuff. And mm -hmm. I, I agree that there's a lot to unpack with mm -hmm. that. Um, I just think that almost no matter what happens to hip hop on that high level, mm -hmm. when you work with one person who's just, let's say, like, the eight participants that I worked with, it's so deeply personal and moving that that connection with the individual to me is very mutually exclusive or independent of any kind of data measurement of globalization of hip hop. Like, yes, you could argue that maybe they're going to try and aspire to certain trends or uh, things, but at the, at the same time, the work that we've done with participants is just, it's all about their context. Mm. And there's something so sincere about that space. So I try, I try not to go too, too uh, far with the globalization stuff. But um, yeah, and, and just like, of course, you'll have artists who might be, for whatever means, encouraged to mention a drug name. Um, and that artist doesn't do that drug, but they name that drug time and time again and naming, naming, naming. And then behind the scenes, they're like, I don't, I don't use it again. Like I struggle with that kind of stuff because it, it saddens me that, you know, this kind of Werther effect or this emotional contagion that someone would want to send out a message. But at the same time, when you bring it back to the individual level, I don't want to judge and bring that mentality of don't do that. That could harm people because maybe at that moment that person really needed to to say something that wasn't positive all the time so just being able to meet someone where they are even if it is linked with something that is false or 
negative, I think it's just so important to meet them. And especially when it comes to like grime and, and drill and things, just sometimes you have to go into some tough spaces to understand the mind frame of someone and whether or not they are going to act on something in their lyrics. Um, that's one thing if they're influenced by uh, the direction of hip hop and all this stuff, or if, you know, for whatever reason, um, just to fit in or whatnot. I think, again, you just, it's all about mental health and meeting someone where they are and unpacking that um, case by case. I know, you know, we live in a world of big tech. We want to scale everything and automate everything. But I just, I do believe that you have to get that right and understand, slow down when it comes to mental health and see where, where the person is, why they're saying it. And yes, put layers and layers of context around it, including that hip hop is, it, it's moving a lot in a global sense. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I answered that well, but yeah. yeah, yeah, just, I think that's kind of my view always comes back to mental health. Yeah. But I think that's it really that, yeah, that was really, that was cathartic just to get a lot of that out. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much. Like that's so fascinating. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's really good. Yeah. Oh, perfect. I ain't but my life is. So thank you so much, Becky and Akeem, for that interview. I hope you all enjoyed it. I really loved it. If you want to check out more about what Becky and Akeem are up to with Hip Hop Psych, take a look at their website at hiphoppsych.co.uk. You can also follow Becky and Akeem at Hip Hop Psych on all their various social media channels. If you do tweet about the episode, use the hashtags Hip Hop Psych, Hip Hop and Mental Health and Sound Effects Podcast. What I would really love is if you could send me an audio message about what you thought of the episode, then it might be nice to do, instead of me just reading out your comments, I can play your voice message at the end of the next episode. Um, so if you'd like to do that, um, you can send any messages to my email at soundeffectspodcast at gmail.com again sound affects with an a and um, personally i really felt like i learned a lot in this interview and i'd love to hear whether it's changed your view on hip-hop as well if you wanted to explore more about hip-hop and um, you might be interested in the hip-hop saved my life podcast hosted by ramesh ranganathan next episode i'll be continuing on the hip-hop themes and then i've got an episode coming up on more of the things that are going on behind the scenes in the nhs using music for mental health so as always you can find me on twitter at sound pod or on instagram on sound underscore affects underscore podcast i don't do much on Facebook but you can find me there if you want to at Sound Pod. If you do join me there just send me a little hello. I'd love a review on Apple Podcast but as I said before send me your audio messages and anytime I get one of those I'll play it on the following podcast episode. Um, I think it's nicer than me just reading out your message as you get to be more of a part of it in your own voice which I think is nice. So that's it from me today. Take care, everyone, and I'll see you next time.